You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 55, Black Rain and the massive filmography of Sir Ridley Scott, featuring duels, aliens, androids, goblins, bodyguards, Yakuza karaoke, outlaws, conquerors, storms, short shorts, gladiators, cannibals, helicopters, conmen, knights, wine, spies, archers, more androids, lawyers, Martians, even more androids, kidnappers, Lady Gaga, more duels, and Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. Martin. Yes. Destiny has brought me to this pork chop. of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, we're doing Sir Ridley. We finally got to him. You know, when Napoleon was coming up and we were talking about doing a Ridley Scott episode, the way you actually convinced me to do it was by saying, we've never done anything Ridley on the show, and we've never really talked about Ridley that much outside of maybe the alien stuff. And we we mentioned Hannibal... When we were doing the Manhunter episode. Right. But like now three years ago. And it wasn't until we started diving in and really revisiting his filmography that I realized what a massive part of like my film going life he's been since I was a kid and VHS, like watching Alien, watching Blade Runner for the first time, you know, after renting it from the video store, Um, even like his duds, stuff like 1492 Conquest of Paradise, when we were talking about revisiting that one, like the first thing that popped into my head was that giant double tape that used to be on, you know, the, the blockbuster shelves. And then even stuff like that. I guess would now be considered like minor works in his uh, massive body, like White Squall, which I went back and saw for the first time again, probably for the first time since tape. Yeah, same for me. I haven't seen it since like 96. That movie completely fucking shreds. So I guess my first question to you is, because this was your big idea, like why Ridley Scott? I mean, like you said... um, I had I mean, I, there's a few actually I hadn't seen before, but there are a few films in his filmography that are. You've so, never seen a Gucci. I'd never seen a Gucci. I'd never seen um, someone to watch over me. But as a completionist, this was great. Um, yeah, you filled in a few gaps. I, I mean, and I was sick. I was sick two weeks ago, and I watched 16 Ridley Scott films in four days. So many, and um, it was a lot different than when we had to watch all the uh, French New Extremity. This was a lot more fun. You know what's crazy is that he made 16 movies in that week while you were sick too. Uh, exactly. You know, uh, 
but I Blade Runner in particular is a really like just important film to me. Like growing up, um, I wasn't allowed to see it for a long time. Actually, we rented it when I was young. My, my dad thought it was way too violent. So it was like I was like for, forbidden to see it. So it which was, is crazy watching it now, especially compared to some of the other movies that Ridley Scott has oh. made, including the Napoleon Bonaparte it's biopic so, he just made. It's so fucking violent it, and makes Blade Runner seem like you know a costume drama from Merchant Ivory by comparison. Absolutely, and but it was a film that I I, I had really built up in my mind, and when I finally saw it, I think I was like fifteen when I saw it again, and like snuck to a friend's house and watched it. And I was like, holy shit. And I remember I was a senior and I was able, I was able to write a paper on it. Like my first film paper of all time was about Blade Runner. So it's very, you know, before college. Um, and I remember in college, like a whole class on identity and science fiction. And like we talked about Blade Runner. So it kind of kept coming back up. But then other films like um, we'll get to that different eras of his filmmaking. But like, you know, I remember when Gladiator came out was just the biggest fucking movie that summer for me. Like. I mean, also it was, a, it was also um, Mission Impossible two for me as a big Woo fan at the time, and still. Um, but Gladiator was just like absolutely mind blowing. Um, it, it felt to me he'd kind of like, from my perspective, I didn't think of White Squall or like GI Jane as like huge hits. You know, they weren't like formative for me. Gladiator, though, when that came, it was like Ridley's back. You know, winning the Oscar, um, and that from well, po- that point on, he was just killing it. Because that's kind of the crazy thing about his career because it spans so long. And frankly, he's so prolific and he pumps so many movies out, especially now in his twilight years. Like he's literally 86 and it feels like he's coming out with almost a movie a year. Yeah. But I mean, there would be these massive, let's say decade defining films. Like he's kind of like Scorsese in a way. And I'd never really you know, put any thought into this. Until we were watching all these movies back to back to back uh, in preparation for this episode, is that he's one of those guys like Scorsese that has a movie per decade that kind of helps define the decade. Yeah. Even if in the moment they weren't necessarily huge hits. Like, for example, obviously Alien yeah. is like the premier or one of the premier, you know. 70s horror films. Yeah. And um, end of the new Hollywood, you know, off the coattails of, of Star Wars. Right. Like doing the horror thing, you know, a B films becoming a films, everything. Blade Runner is now looked at as one of the movies that redefined sci-fi, even if again, in the moment it was kind of critically and culturally rejected and seen as kind of a, a bomb. Yeah. Right. When oh, it first very came much. Out. Um, also, like a lot of his films, fucked it with like, editing and studio problems. Yeah, that's you know. one of the things we do have to get into too. Is that like he's the master of the the director's cut <laughs> and tinkering? Like, yes, we everybody gives you know George Lucas shit throughout the years for like going back and redoing and jiggering Star Wars and everything. But like Ridley's the master; he's the one who goes back and is never done with a movie. But he makes it better. That's the difference between uh, he and Lucas. Not always. I mean, Blade Runner definitely. Blade and Runner heaven. Kingdom of Heaven, but I would argue the Alien DC sucks. That's rough, dude. So, like, it's kind of like we were talking about while we were revisiting Alien because it's one of those movies that, like, we've both seen so many fucking times that we could just put on and basically talk over. And one of the things we were talking about was about how, like, 
Ridley would go back and redefine these movies. And this was sort of like his version of the exorcist, uh, the version you've never seen before. Yeah. You know, where like many people believe that that was a mistake for Friedkin to go back and put the spider walk in and to, you know, change it, you know, put some of the extra scenes between the two priests in. It was, it was too much. And like, he basically fucked with a perfect thing. Aliens kind of the same way. Like you don't need all that extra stuff, especially at the end where she goes into like the egg chamber and everything. Like, it's just not very good. It's like, leave your perfect masterpieces alone. We're like kingdom of heaven. Totally makes sense because the movie was take more or less not taken away from him, but mandated by like 20th century Fox of like, Hey man, like, we can't release a four hour film. Like nobody's going to go see it. You're lucky that we even let you do like a two and a half hour cut for theaters. And he does it just to get it out into, you know, multiplexes so they can try and make its money back. Like Napoleon, which is one of the more baffling ones, especially considering it's playing right alongside killers of the flower moon. And it's an Apple films, you know, original production is that he's been teasing this whole time. Like there's a four hour cut. Of Napoleon. And when you watch Napoleon, it's clear that there's a four hour cut because it feels like it there's connective stuff, yeah. tissue that that would make the movie a lot richer because like the first hour, and we'll get into it a little later when we actually dive deeper into Napoleon, is that like the first hour of Napoleon feels like your speed reading like history textbooks. Like I in my brain I kind of had the sensation of like, you know those um, teaching tools like Rosetta Stones where they're like, oh, learn Spanish in 27 days or yeah. whatever. Like, that's what I thought. It, or like, I was like Neo in the Matrix and like Ridley was just <laughs> downloading speed reading, yeah. the French Revolution into my brain. And he's like, there you go. You're an expert now. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, especially in with like the Marie Antoinette like prologue and everything. It's just like, he's just dashing through like a decade of French history before we even really get to like the real meat of like Napoleon's life as a, you know, uh, French military leader. But back to the original point is that in the seventies, you have alien late seventies, we'll say yeah, eighties, you have blade runner. And I would say like, you know, some of the stuff in the eighties are, he's more defined by the titles that would honestly go on to become more like cult items. Yeah. Blade Runner, Legend, as much as I don't really like Legend, yeah. it does have a massive cult fan base. It just had that huge like arrow release that looks amazing, even if the movie's like borderline unwatchable and it, for but me. It's, a, it's one of his prettiest films, though, at the same it's time. It's gorgeous. It's just look at beautiful. it. You're like, holy shit. And yeah. it has Tom Cruise, like, yeah. you know, right Tangerine before Dream score. the Tangerine Dream score. Um, but I mean, even the movie that we're about to talk about, Black Rain, which is personally my favorite Ridley Scott movie, which might be a bit of a hot take. I don't know. But like that movie wasn't a huge hit or anything when it first came out, but it's gone on to become like a cult object for people who love action movies. Yeah. And then you get into the 90s. Thelma and Louise. Thelma sure. and Louise is like a seminal you know, 90s movie. Yeah. It's one of the movies, I mean, Criterion just put it out too. It's one of those decade-defining films. It's still a classic. And, it's still and, a classic. And referenced, like, the driving off the side of the Yo, Grand that, Canyon. And they, they taught Callie Curry's uh, screenplay to me in college. Like, it was one of the books that I had to buy for my yeah. screenwriting course because it's considered a perfect script. It is an absolute you know? perfect script. And it's yeah. one of those movies that I think Ridley was supposed to produce... For like years and years and years, and it, it stopped and started 
and looked like it was never going to happen. And then he basically just said, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And that was when he was, again, coming off of kind of like a fallow period of like legend, black rain, someone to watch over me. Like these movies that weren't quite hitting the same way that alien was. And then it looked like he might be kind of like a washed up journeyman hack. And then he jumps behind the the camera for Thelma and Louise. And it becomes like a, a legit phenomenon in American cinema. Yeah. He's one of those, I mean, I kept writing down like during my <laughs> multiple days of sickness and just binging Ridley is like, he has, he's so versatile in the types of films he makes too. Right. I mean like watching Thelma and Louise, the plot, you're like, this is the last thing he would normally do. But visually, which we've got to talk about as well, is like what really is a visual filmmaker, like through and through, like more than a lot of filmmakers I can think of. Like he maybe has the best eye of any living filmmaker. Like his stuff still looks. It's up there. I mean, because he and we kind of talked about this when we were watching um, Alien and then The Martian, but like. Uh, there's definitely a spectrum for Ridley of like style to like substance, right? And his earlier films are much more style, like because he's coming off, you know, being a commercial director, um, you know, Alien and Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner in particular, um, as much as that's one of my favorite films, it, it is kind of empty at moments, and it, but it's still gorgeous to look at. Well, I mean, listen to what you even said about Legend is that it's like Legend's a piece of shit. But just look at it. It's beautiful. You know? And then you go from that to like, I mean, you go to the like fucking um, uh, someone to watch over me. It's kind of a grind. Um, it's a pretty boilerplate kind of, you know, cop 80s movie. cop movie. Uh, Behringer's great in it. Um, Lorraine Bracco's amazing in it. But visually, it's like there's some shots in New York of like him on the subway when he first goes to on the way to her penthouse. Mind blowing stuff. But it's kind of an empty movie. And I don't think it's until Black Rain where he's kind of like dancing into his brother's lane a little bit, which we'll also talk about. It feels like a Tony Scott film, Um, definitely a buddy cop type of movie. Um, But the storytelling starts to really strengthen, I think in that film. And then his first, I think masterpiece of storytelling as well is Thelma and Louise. I think that's when he hit his stride. Um, As much as I love alien, I think a lot of it has to do with the script and uh, the, the Giger yeah, designs. Yeah, Dan O'Bannon. And it's, it's gorgeously shot. It's well-directed, but I don't think it doesn't... He's not a he's not Carpenter and he's not Spielberg in that he's like a movie geek where he's like a storyteller first. Those first films are just very beautiful to look at. But Alien is just like... It's so, it's so jaw-dropping and visually to this day. But I think it wasn't until Thumb and Louise he really kind of hit his stride. Well, that, does that make sense? It does because it 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 also makes sense that he's one of the foremost like Kubrick experts like ever. Yeah. Because you want to talk about another artist who's more of an image maker than he is an actual storyteller. Like Kubrick communicated almost everything through sheer Imagery. Yeah. You know, like staging, blocking. 2001, yeah. like you can piece together a narrative in that movie, but like it becomes transcendent because of the visuals. The Star Child sequence, most people couldn't tell you what the fuck is even going on in that, but they'll still say it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. The Shining, not exactly a masterpiece of like storytelling to the point that it, Stephen it King arcs, yeah. even like disowned it and you know very famously hates it because he he takes the novel and just makes it into an abstract haunted house movie 
I mean, even look at, you know, uh, Ridley Scott's like very first movie, The Duelist in 1977, is that it's just him doing Barry Lyndon, but he cuts it all together in this way to where like it's all of these languid, very strange scenes about two roosters in the French army just basically challenging one another to to battles of honor. And like there's no real narrative to it. It's just these guys one upping each other until you reach like kind of the end point of their rivalry with one another. But like he stages and lights and shoots all of it in the same kind of naturalistic way that Kubrick made Barry Lyndon, where it's all those slow zooms out. There's all of that natural lighting. There's all of the costume, like very, very particular uh, kind of like costume drama, like detail to it. There, He loves opulence and he loves filling the frame with as much as he possibly can. And he loves commu- using that visual information to communicate in the same way that Kubrick does. And I mean, he's returned to it time and time again. I mean, you could argue that Napoleon, his movie in 2023 is almost like a callback to his very first film and that they both take place during the Napoleonic era. And they're both about guys who can't let go of their fucking insane pride and follow it to their own doom. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's a really cool kind of bookends, you know, and obviously he has, Many more films. He's they. I think today they're back on set for Gladiator Two, because um, because of, of the strike, which is another decade defining movie. Because Gladiator was like you couldn't throw a rock in what two thousand when that movie came out, and like without hitting somebody who was like, "Hey man, have you seen Gladiator yet?" Well, he's you know you're like you're saying about the Duelist though, and definitely being inspired by you know Kubrick, who he loved and loves is, you know, any kind of artist, like these, it's really great watching the early films of filmmakers where they're obviously going to be referencing their, their, their heroes, right? But there's still moments in that film where you see the Ridley he's going to become. And I think specifically the one scene that's not, is not a Kubrick film is the final duel at that, like, broken down castle. Yeah. And the, and the thing about Kubrick is, like, his stuff is so, is, is so perfect, right? It's so, like, you can set your watch to it and you know the the breakdowns of like the blocking and like clockwork orange like just insane just like you could watch whole vid- you know vi- i have video essays on like on that film but like what's cool about um the duelist is like the especially the end scene is you see ridley's eye for the epic that even the budget of that film it was under a million dollars like they squeezed you know every dollar they could out of that film and he knew he knows like to put a guy standing on a ridge with just nature behind him is just as epic as fuck. You see him do that, you know, to great effect in Thelma and Louise, you know, two people in the West, but it feels like the biggest fucking movie you've ever seen in your life. Well, it's all about how the vistas dwarf human beings. Yeah. You know, again, he loves it's very, it's very you, cosmic. You texted me at one point, Ridley, not afraid of the wide shot. Extreme wide shots, too. I yeah. mean, there's stuff in Alien Covenant we were watching last night uh, when they're on the engineer's planet. It's like David is literally like on my screen like half an inch. And then it's just this giant fucking sci-fi vista, you know, surround. But that's, I mean, to your point earlier, too, one of the things I like about him is the fact that he jam-packs every frame with information. I mean, like, when I think of, of Scott, 
I think of um, Sebastian's apartment in Blade Runner. Jeff Sebastian's. It's just like the dolls, like those scenes where it's just like talk about, you know, not just being dwarfed by vistas, but also like your main character kind of being lost in the milieu of the scene. Right. You just have like, and honestly, he does it for narrative effect with um, Daryl Hannah, you know, hiding out, you know, inside that, that, that just like menagerie of like what, 500 dolls and toys. And she's just another toy. Yeah, exactly. And like in the nineties too, you kind of mentioned with black rain is that, you know, he, with his brother, you know, established Scott Free, um, and one of the gr- which became like one of the great commercial production studios, and they were rich before they started making movies. Yeah, and it's worth noting as we talk about all this that Ridley didn't make his first movie until he was forty. Like he didn't direct his first feature until like he was halfway through his life, and then he couldn't stop. And then he and his brother, which as much as of a cliche, it's become to talk about like Tony versus Ridley and yada, yada, yada. There is some like sibling rivalry that can be seen inside of their filmographies to where it feels like Ridley is chasing Tony because like, you know, with Black Rain being one of the great examples is that, you know, a year or two before that, you know, Tony Scott made Beverly Hills Cop 2 was a massive success. And then all of a sudden Ridley's like, well, I got to make my buddy cop movie now. And originally it was supposed to be point break. Like he was supposed to make point break with what was it? James Garner and Charlie Sheen. Yeah. We looked up and it's one, again, one of the, the great lost projects on a massive list of lost projects from Ridley Scott. But then in the nineties, he would kind of chase his brother again because his brother would team up you know with don simpson and jerry bruckheimer after top gun and keep coming back to his kind of military porn and would make one of his best movies with crimson tide but at the same time you know here comes ridley who's like oh shit my brother's making these military movies that are all character based and feature some of the biggest stars in the world with like denzel and gene hackman what if i made gi jane with demi moore who was kind of at like peak Demi yeah, Moore like. right after striptease right well and it's I was you know and beat for beat G.I. Jane is top gun it's the exact same plot like it's like joining joining this like elite squad the ins and outs obviously it's more gender based but then the last is is the mission yeah you know they go on the mission she saves the day and is the hero guys like, in short shorts a lot of short shorts I mean and Vigo Vigo short shorts just he's so fucking good in that movie I think G.I. Jane as on the whole is kind of a middling effort it's super entertaining yeah. in that way that those mid 90s kind of military uh pieces of pulp are you know Crimson Tide yeah uh, the Rock, all those movies that Simpson and Bruckheimer were, were pumping out. It's actually kind of ridiculous that, you know, you go back and see that they didn't actually, I always thought that they did produce G.I. Jane. Yeah. They didn't. Well, it just, you see that Ridley's preoccupations of just beyond what you would get. Cause like Crimson Tide is my favorite Tony Scott film. It's a perfect movie. It's incredible. And it's just pure entertainment. But like you said, there's some, I think Rid- also Rid- with Vigo Ridley loses the thread a little bit. I think with G.I. Jane, where it's like he, there's definitely there's politics going on that he's trying to capture, but it kind of loses the fact that it's supposed to be a military action movie and based on a true story, which is not a true story. No, not at all. <laughs> it never happened. 
<laughs> but I mean, GI Jane for all of its flaws, you go back and rewatch it now because it was what 97? 97, yeah. So you're looking at what 26 years ago, almost a quarter century. Yeah, we'll say. And it feels like a movie that would honestly be made in 2021, 2022, 2023 because it's all about these weird gender politics like the way even the senator in the in the intro of that movie kind of picks the candidate it's all even though it's for women and to prop like kind of these feminist ideals up she's also like being like no we can't put that one out she's too butch or too lesbo or what you know like there's these very unwoke kind of terms being used in it, but she's picking them like a cover model as much as she is being like, this is the best candidate for the job. It's an interesting kind of approach to politics that Ridley would always employ, you know, even with like one of my favorites of his movies that we went back and revisited, uh, White Squall. Weird politics in that movie because it's all basically about a very harsh master taking these boys out onto the sea and like teaching them come hell or literal high water uh, about how to be men and how to, to live in this world by like a code. But like there's some weird shit going on in that movie. Yeah. There's um, it's really interesting to just to watch, obviously watch his films just in a huge block and you start to see just his, his thematic preoccupations like honor is definitely one of them is a huge honor and, and, and code codes of honor. But I think the other thing is, is, which connects White Squall, we talked about this off mic, um, with G.I. Jane, is this idea of, like, pain now during, like, training will save your life later. Yeah. You may hate me now, but, like, Vigo's the same character as Jeff uh, Bridges. Like, it's the right. idea of, like, you hate him, but it's, like, there's that scene where he's going to simulate rape upon her in G.I. Jane. It's really kind of horrific. And he does go too far, and they tell him that, but he says, he's like, I... I'm trying to save her life because I, if she gets taken, this is what's going to happen to right. her. I'm not sure how I feel about that as a viewer, but it's idea is like, no, once you're in war though, like there's no more practice, you know? And it's, you, you see also to your point with, um, with Anne Bancroft in GI Jane is Ridley's one of those filmmakers. I feel like, and I've seen him interviewed where you try to talk politics and he's like, I, I, I don't care. I don't care. It's not what I was And I truly about. believe he doesn't care. I, I don't think he cares because like he makes, he's been asked about, you know, being a feminist. He makes these very female centric films that are very complex and wonderful. But I think he's just like, honestly, believes I'm just going to tell a story like, like Thelma and Louise, like obviously it's in the script of these two women who right. are fighting back against this oppressive society and be finally becoming free. This like patriarchal world. But I think with things like GI Jane, he's just kind of like, it's more a script problem. I think he's just like, I want to tell the movie. I just want to do the movie of this person. It's a fish out of water. He loves fish out of water stories, you know, and he wants to do that. I'll take it a step further. I don't even think that he wants to tell a story. I think he just wants to make a product because mm. at his heart, he's an ad man. He's always been a sales guy. And he's, and I think that's part of why he chases Tony is that he's not being like, well, that was a massive artistic achievement. He goes, ah, oh, fuck. He can see the scoreboard. You know, like he can be like Top Gun made how much Crimson Tide made how much, you know, like it's it's his desire to basically sell the most units, 
get the most eyeballs, be the guy who like walks into the meeting with the biggest dick and is like, here's my portfolio. Fuck you. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, he's still the guy who made the uh, George Orwell uh, Apple commercial and which was the biggest and most viewed commercial. What of all time in its time. So it's like to him, it's as much a pinball score as it is an artistic kind of competition. Does that make sense? No, I think that's a good point. And he's definitely, he's definitely also like a filmmaker who I don't, when I'm hearing, I've watched a million interviews with him and I read that amazing. They're the best. They're, he, he's so, he's so acerbic and like the great one from Vanity Fair, which is beautiful. And I recommend all of our listeners read it. It's really amazing and quite sad. It gets in his relationship with his brother. Um, and, but you know, I read I read interviews with you know one of our favorite filmmakers, Michael Mann. He goes like crazy into the research, and he talks about you know working with the actors and building character. And I think Mann is a storyteller first, you know, and compared definitely compared to Ridley. Oh, he's an artist compared to Ridley. Yeah, yeah. and he has this idea of like I'm going to make this kind of singular piece. And you know, with this interview, especially Randy Fair, like Ridley is just also like a crazy workaholic. Like he has this work ethic of. You know, at night, he's, like, shot listing for the next day and drawing these beautiful storyboards. And then he's more interested in the process, too, of making the movie. And, you know, being the general of, of making these un- unmakeable movies. I mean, Black Hawk Down, you watch that movie, I don't know how he made it. Like, there's some epic shit. Oh, Napoleon, I, Napoleon, too. Gladiator. I mean, just, like... Kingdom way, of Heaven. Yeah, how does, how does he... I mean, he's got to have 18 assistant directors to make that shit work. I mean... Well... He's almost like one of those guys to where you hear those stories about like older folks who work all the way up until their death and then something happens like they get hurt yeah. or they're forced to retire by their job or, you know, take any kind of very sad circumstance into to, uh, consideration as to why they were forced into retirement. And then they die a year later. Yeah. That was their, I truly that was their purpose. Think, yeah. Like that's Ridley is that if he doesn't stop moving, he's almost like a shark. He's just going to die in the water and he knows it because he's 86. It's like, and also like, what the fuck else is he going to do with his life now? His brother, who was his best friend is dead and has been dead for what? A decade now? Just yeah, about. It's been over a decade. Um, yeah. When you're 86, you got to imagine. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We're in this phase of like these old masters that we know are wrapping it up. And Scorsese is obviously the big story now with Killers yeah. of the Flower Moon, a movie he's been working for a long, long time to get finally realized. But his press tour is, is like kind of stands in very stark contrast to Ridley's is that Scorsese's all about being like, I know my time is up. I only have maybe one more movie left in me. Everyone around me, all my friends, all the people I ever knew, they're all dead. Cronenberg's the same. Yeah. Cronenberg's the same way. I mean, Cronenberg's next movie is the first movie to ever actually deal with the afterlife. It's about a guy basically who invents a technology to talk to his dead wife. You want to talk about something that sounds insanely personal. Yeah. Coming from a guy who was just widowed. Like, it's the first time that Cronenberg's ever directly addressed what happens when you die. Because it's on these guys' mind. And, like, Scorsese's been very, very open about being, like, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm in my 80s, and, like, I know that this is it for me, 
where like they ask Ridley and Ridley being fucking dickhead Ridley Scott goes I don't have time to think about that I'll wake up and I'm like I got four projects give me more stress and you're like Jesus Christ dude man is though as much as we've said that man kind of is different from Ridley in terms of being an artist versus a salesman is that man has said almost this the same exact thing to where he's like I don't have time to think about death I'm just working fuck off you know what I mean? Like it, but it's also the difference between these guys. And I think where Ridley and Michael Mann are, are similar personality wise or persona wise is that Ridley is the great general. Like I, I do believe 100%. that that's why he returns to all of these military movies, be it period military movies with like the duelists, Napoleon, the last duel gladiator, gladiator like all these guys and, and then you even see like stuff like black hawk down gi jane um even something like white squall body of lies hard commander body of lies like he sees himself as the great commander of 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 individuals like when he goes we talk about how these movies are so hard to fucking make he makes them because they're impossible. Like you can see him relating to Napoleon Bonaparte because it's like that guy saw every challenge as fucked up and crazy and perverted as he was. He saw every challenge and he was like, you're not going to tell me I can't do that. And you know why I can't, I can do it is because I have a whole army behind me. Ridley's the same way when he tackles these massive projects. Imagine directing kingdom of heaven. Like you just said, there's 18 ADs on that fucking movie. That's his army. That's him going and being like, you, you shoot this angle. You get the vistas. You get like all of the handheld like sword fighting stuff. He's commanding a fleet so that it can all be cut together by Pietro Scalia in the editing bay to become a great piece of art. Yeah, and he, uh, well put. And I, I mean, really didn't start that type of filmmaking from it didn't really start though until um, Gladiator. That was the first time he had done yeah, uh, in terms because even the duelist is very small. Oh, it's very small. I mean, GI Jane is the scenes are more you know incursions, not big you know full out classic military frontal assaults. Yeah, but that opening scene of Gladiator is him really putting his dick on the table. Yeah, I, mean, I remember seeing that. I still watch that scene, and I don't know how he did it. You know, and and the scenes of the fireballs rolling out Jesus, of it. Yeah, you know? it's and, incredible. And that's another point too about it's him. like the cannonballs of Napoleon. It, wait, that's the thing too, right? He he is he also follows the cool. He's one of those filmmakers that like Well, that's the salesman in him. He, is that he's like, what's gonna sell now? Exactly. And he he like you watch those scenes and I remember um again our amazing friend Ridley being interviewed about um the uh uh, historical inaccuracies of Napoleon. And he just says, get a life to these people. Those are his words. And I totally agree. But the scene in particular that people were talking about, I have, I have Is friends. the Egyptian stuff? Uh, well, the Egyptian one plus the ice scene, out the Auerwitz scene, or whatever that battle was. And the idea is like, he didn't do that. Like there was, there was a battle there, but he didn't like shoot the ice. But I don't fucking give a shit. I'm not there to watch a documentary about Napoleon. I want to see, it's so, that's some of the best shot he's ever shot best stuff he's ever shot dude and it's you know? also like it's a fucking movie exactly like mark zuckerberg also didn't have an asian girlfriend but it's great drama in the social network yeah it's like i bring this anecdote up a whole bunch but it's like when the journalist comes up to john ford on the set of one of his movies and is like 
you know, he's staging a battle sequence. All these gunmen are hunkered down and the, the Native American warriors are charging. And the journalist goes, why don't they just shoot the horses? And John Ford goes, because there wouldn't be a movie then. And it's just like, it's the way that we've been brainwashed to watch some of these movies over time is that it's like, it's, it's great. Great drama is different from realism. Like, I don't know at what point we were like programmed into thinking realism equaled great drama. Like who gives a fuck? Like he also didn't shoot, like Napoleon didn't shoot cannibals at the Sphinx. Yeah. Like that didn't happen. You know what though? It looks fucking cool on TV. Well, it's, it's also like, he's a visual metaphor guy too. It's all in the, in the frame. Yeah. So it's like, he is the kind of character in that film who would shoot the fucking, who would shoot the Sphinx, who would shoot the fucking pyramids. You know, even if he didn't, that's to the, say that he he did to, to say that he could, and it's this guy, obviously this petulant little man, you know, doing this, and yeah, there weren't fireballs coming down the the fucking hill in Gladiator, but also it's one of the coolest fucking things. It really knows, like you said, what's going to sell. Well, let's talk about Black Rain now because yes. we've kind of danced around it thus far. This is my favorite Ridley Scott movie. It is, and and to take it back to him kind of chasing Tony Scott, is that he went in, he made a buddy cop movie that's also a fish-out-of-water movie that's also lensed by Jan de Bont and looks like the greatest thing that's ever been filmed in our lifetime. Like, it opens with a motorcycle chase as, like, the sun is going down against New York, and you're, like, just... Be me and like I, I'm ready. It, I watched. I've probably seen it ten times, more times than I ever should have. But I, I wasn't gonna rewatch it because I was like, I've seen it so many times. But I was like, I'm gonna watch it um, again when I was feeling sick. I'm so glad I did because uh, something that happens a lot of times when I watch Ridley Scott movies is I audibly like gasp and moan at just the beauty of some of the frames that he does. And I think I told you I was on the plane going home for Thanksgiving and I was watching film on the weeds and I'm just like, Ugh, oh my God, I'm like saying that out loud and people are looking at me like I'm watching porn. I'm like, no, it's just Ridley Scott, like being an amazing filmmaker. But Black Rain, like you said, is that like it is perfect 80s. It's fucking action porn. Like it, it is how a movie is supposed to look. We've talked before about other filmmakers like like Cameron, right? It's like this is how this movie should look. And it's perfect. The sky replacement of everything is that amber, the, that huge apartment he's got, Michael Douglas in New York. And it's just that like that, sunset behind him. That mullet. Oh, the mullet. Well, also too, like working with Jan DeBont, like all the motivated lighting they built, they especially in, in, in Japan, they build these light fixtures into every scene, like neon fixtures and weird light tubes. You know we're not there on the set. Like they put that shit in. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it all looks like, I mean, it looks like Blade Runner, right? I mean, like, it's, it feels like it's from the same world, you know, of, like, the smokiness, the neon, these, like, crowded streets. I mean, obviously, Blade Runner, like, there's a lot of... It's supposed to be kind of Tokyo-esque, you know, with the masses of people. Um, but I just... I mean, this film is so fucking perfect. Well, and it's also, like, you want to talk about a movie that doesn't have a logical plot, too. It's about two American cops who have to escort a guy back to Japan to return him to the Japanese police so that 
he can stand trial and you're like watching it for something he did in America. Yeah. It's some, like you're watching it. And you're like, they would never do this. This wouldn't happen. And then it becomes, but I mean, the best parts of the movie are these machismo American cops getting dropped into the middle of Tokyo and like having to basically be the fish out of water and dealing with how, you know, the, the rituals and, and kind of honor code, of the, the Japanese police force and how they look at these, uh, these American cops as like just dirty pigs with no manners the entire time. And how, you know, of course our, our ugly American Michael Douglas learned something about himself in the process. Uh, even as his, his great partner, Andy Garcia does some karaoke and then gets his fucking head cut off. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, the theme of honor runs throughout everything, most of his yeah. films, you know, and that's the, like you said, that's the arc of this is this American cop who thinks that, you know, taking a little bit of money is still honorable because he's not paid enough. And he, he learns from Moss, his, his Japanese partner that like, it's yes or no, like you're either a good cop or a bad cop. You know, yeah. there's no in between. If you take money, you're, you're bad. Um, and I think it was funny, you know, how you have you know, you mentioned Beverly Hills cop too, but like this is again, beat for beat the first Beverly Hills cop again, fish out of water, right. the guy who's cause you know, again, same thing. Beverly Hills is like Japan, right? It's very proper. We have, he ways might we, as well be on Mars. No, yeah. Right. And we have ways we do things here and the, and the same plot of, you know, again, turning his partner. Cause again, Moss also learns to let loose a little bit. They meet in the middle. I mean, that you karaoke know. scene uh, is the best scene in the whole fucking movie when he and Andy Garcia get up there and sing Ray Charles. It's so fucking awesome. I think it's my favorite Andy Garcia role. I don't think I've ever liked him more than in this movie. Um, He's really likable in this movie, too. It's this or Untouchables for me. Yeah. Like, I love him in Untouchables. He's fucking cool in Untouchables. Yeah. Like, he's cooler. Well, and also the relationship that he has with Connery in that movie is really fucking great. Yeah, but I think like he just what we need another thief and wop. <laughs> but he's so lovable in this, and his relationship with um, with Moss is like is really great. Um, but again, it's just it it maybe is one of I kind of put it in the same boat as um, as The Martian. It's pure entertainment too. It's Ridley at his most like blockbustery. I know you know even though the other war films are blockbuster, this is like a straightforward bullet because even gladiator has some fat on it it's still a big epic yeah right this is a fucking bullet same as martian it is just like a boy you know just fucking a boiling pot with just great storytelling and it's just beautiful to look at great action the martian is surprisingly hopeful from him and, it, and cute and funny and yeah it's almost like a frank capra movie set in space or like an aaron sorkin kind of uh, workplace drama, like all the NASA stuff, especially once Donald Glover comes in to basically solve, you know, solve the problem and save the day. It, that all feels straight. Like they just brought Aaron Sorkin into ghost, right? Although I guess it's Drew Goddard, which makes total sense. Yeah. Too. And the Andy Weir st- and Andy Weir wrote the book. It's very much that, that sense of humor. Right. And, and of course, like, you know, something we haven't talked about is just casting. Like, you know, Ridley is a, is a consummate caster and, when he's not working with current movie stars, he's finding new people on the way up. I right. Mean, Damon is the heart and soul, obviously, of The Martian. Like At uh, his he, most at, movie star, like, wattage. At, at, at his most just, like, charming, lovable. And it's funny because 
what works about the Martian is exactly what doesn't work about a good year. Um, in that, you know, uh, Russell Crowe coming off a rough couple of years, like he hit the high of, of winning the Oscar two nominations in a row for the insider and then winning for gladiator and then having his trouble with punching people in the face and throwing phones in hotels. Yeah. And, and, and Ridley talking about in that interview that, you know, he kind of, cause they're, they're still friends and he wanted to help him out, gave him this role. Also very Capra, you know, very Howard Hawk supposed to be almost has the, the feel of like a, a screwball comedy, Yeah, but it falls fucking flat. Like the script is also really terrible. Um, but, uh, Russell doesn't have that charm that Damon does. Like Damon just plays Damon and is charming. Russell's, I think a better actor, but he just doesn't have that in him. I mean, it's kind of like what Michael Douglas is doing in Black Rain. Like exactly. Michael Douglas is almost doing like Basic Instinct. Yeah, same guy. You yeah, know, yeah. it could almost be a Basic Instinct prequel if he just snorted some cocaine and fucked some Japanese hookers along the way. Yeah, I would watch that shit. But no, but but, <laughs> but he, you know, Michael again, Douglas. I know you're listening. But you made the point, you know, we we're off off mic about just like, you know, you watch these films and they are jam packed with like either up and comers or movie stars. I mean, like Prometheus is like every fucking actor you can name is in it. White Squall is every actor on there. You know, Ryan Felipe right before he did. I know he did last summer. You have a young Balthazar Getty. Um, you have Scott Wolf, Ethan Embry, Ethan Embry, all these people, you know, Scott Wolf, who, you know, he looked at and was like, this is the next Tom Cruise. And it, but he's, he's really good. He's really good in White Squall. I don't think he's a very good actor, but I I think he, I don't know. I think he plays it well. Ridley knew how to use him. Here's the best question about White Squall. Is it just Ridley Scott doing Peter Weir? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It feels in it cuz it you have you have Jeff, you know, Bridges right after Fearless. Not too yeah. many longer in that kind of that kind of mode. It's just him doing Dead Poet Society with you know just a giant boat in a storm. Oh, Captain, my Captain, but quite literal. Yeah, and and you know obviously it's before Master and Commander, but you know there's elements of that as well, even though it came out first. Um, also has cannonballs in it. Master and Commander, great cannonball movie. Great cannonballs, just a great fucking movie all around. I yeah. love, I fucking love that movie. But um, but yeah, you have people like we talked about, you know. You have uh, Harrison Ford on the way up. Obviously, he just sent Indiana Jones and, 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 Han and, and Han Solo. He's, you know, the next big thing. Well, also, um, there's the interesting, I guess, dichotomy of Ridley, too, is that he casts these people and he has an eye for talent just in the same way that he has an eye for everything else. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he and the actors get along because he and Harrison Ford very famously clashed on the set of Blade Runner. Absolutely. I mean, you come off working with like Spielberg and Lucas, who's just kind of a, a pushover and, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a rough ride, but you, you know, I'm the, one of my favorite anecdotes about, uh, you know, he, obviously Russell Crowe, they've done many projects together is their first, their first film together was gladiator. And I think the first scene they shot was one of the first scenes in the film. And it's when, uh, Maximus is, He's putting dirt on his hands right before the battle, and uh, and he sees the bird, looks up, watches the bird fly away, and it's just, again, a completely visual thing. Really walks up, he goes, all right, so you're going to stare at the ground, you're going to see the bird, you're going to watch the bird, you're going to be wistful for a second, then you're going to turn your eyes back to the battle, it's time to fight. Just do that. Russell does that beat for beat. <laughs> 
Ridley comes up and Russell thinks he's in trouble. Like he fucked up. He's like, we're gonna be fucking brilliant together, buddy. And he just like, cause you see like Russell gets it. Like he gets the kind of filmmaker that really is. And also I think he understands cause he's also a gruff person. They definitely work well together. It's kind of the David Fincher thing too, of like the yeah. people who are, who gravitate towards David Fincher doing a hundred takes or whatever. And some people being like Kim, uh, Kim Dickens, you know, Joni Stubbs from Deadwood comes on and says that she loved doing take after take after after take after take for Fincher because she's like, I just thought it was interesting. And we found the best one, you know, where Hall, you know, had his famous quote, uh, David likes to paint with people and sometimes it's very hard to be a color, you know, like Ridley's sort of the same way is that you're either going to acclimate or connect with that, that general style of directing of being like it's almost utilitary mm-hmm. in a way uh, instead of like this very you know like Cronenberg you know to, to bring him up again has a a reputation of being like one of the ultimate actors directors because he does have that very touchy feely intellectual side of like okay what do you need like what what, what can we talk yeah, about very uh, soft and, yeah, yeah like and I remember uh, Maria Bello when they were talking about, uh, you know, doing promotion for history of violence had a story where, you know, they were talking about the sex scenes and history of violence and how violent and stuff they were and how, you know, to, he, you know, closed off the set and made them all very comfortable, her and Vigo and stuff. And like, they kind of found what he was looking for and explained like how they're expressing it through the character. She goes, and then he tells a, a very inappropriate sex joke just to like lighten the mood. And then we're off to the races because he just knew how to like work set that, that tone yeah. and, and, and uh, handle actors with those kind of kid gloves where Ridley's just like, all right, mate, you're either going to do it or you're not. Well, get the fuck out. <laughs> And there's something too I was I think about watching these films is again being a very versatile director and he has you know things he's drawn to visually like, again like these epic vistas and and um, the certain color palettes he loves and obviously working with um, the same cinematographer for the last what twenty years yeah Darius Wolski yeah so for a long time and Wolski basically only shoots for Ridley now it's like he's basically um, only working with him but. Well, you got to imagine, again, to take it back to the whole general metaphor, is that, like, you have to have a very particular skill set or or way of working to work with Ridley Scott, especially if you're the guy lensing all of his movies for you. Yeah, and, and, and just having that, that shorthand, right? Exactly. You know, but I was thinking about there is a sense with some of his films of being a chameleon, you know, like you were making the point earlier about, you know, he understands the assignment for each film and like, what is the cool, what is going to sell? Like Matchstick Men looks like a Soderbergh film. Like it plays like a Soderbergh film. I think American Gangster plays like a mixture of late Spike Lee and and some also Scorsese, you know, that type of film, right? And so he gets the assignment and he'll twist himself. American Gangster's so fucking good. That movie rules, dude. And and you made the point, because you texted me, you rewatched it before I did, and we kind of had the same thought, though, of the fact that history has been very kind because those films aren't made anymore. When it came out, I was like, meh. You know, we I took mean, it for granted. I took it for granted. And now I watch it, I'm like, this is better than the majority of shit I'm seeing, well, even on TV. And also, it's worth noting that, and we've made this point, again, a million times across the course of this podcast, is that uh, 
if American Gangster were made today, it would be a series. Yeah. It would probably be 100%. a limited series. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, you know, Ridley made Raised by Wolves for HBO. Like, American Gangster would probably be an HBO series. And Raised you by know? Wolves should be a movie and not a show. Exactly. And actually, it's the, it's the opposite. Like, he would, he would have made American Gangster into, like, a, a six-part epic limited series for HBO Russell Crowe and Denzel probably and Denzel probably wouldn't have been in it but he probably would have been able to get Russell Crowe it would have been like a true detective type thing of like oh man look at these massive stars going to TV yeah. to tell the tale of Frank Lucas importing uh, Blue Magic in, in, into New York City in the 70s and becoming the king of the heroin game like it would have been sold that way mm. almost like The Wire you yeah. know and there's, but pl- there's plenty movie, of space for it yeah it fucking rules man especially the extended cut oh my god dude well, and I was seeing like the way that he, the way he shoots. My favorite scenes in that film are when um, Frank goes to Vietnam and to get the opium. So good, and it reminds me of uh, fucking Columbus in fourteen ninety two. It's this. It's this again. He likes dreamers too in his film. These mad dreamers who are like, I'm going to cut out the middleman. You know, the idea of this guy traveling into the jungle, almost like Heart of Darkness style. And bringing it back to the people is just like visually mind blowing, and the, and then the shootout in the drug den is one of the coolest things that he has like, ever done. Every film I watch, it's him, him doing his brother again. It's it, Tony Scott, but it's it's so fluid, and he is so understands like clarity too. You know, it's like you see the sense of space, and he just knows where to put the camera. You know, but he's not. You know, I, I as much as I love Spielberg, and I do love Spielberg. Like Spielberg is so much more the style can be more in your face of like these longer takes, and really doesn't get lost in that way. You know, it's kind of just like, what do I need to do? The How, other thing you know, that that Ridley really understands is Josh Brolin, and how having oily <laughs> Josh Brolin in a trench coat just elevates your movie at least another star. Oh, he's so good in it. He's so gnarly in that movie. I love him. To Another death. cast where you're just like, you just like tripping over stars. Even T.I. is awesome in it. He's great. Uh, and, and Cuba Gooding is awesome. Oh, yeah. As Nikki Barnes. Yeah, dude. What yeah. a great movie. Yeah, it, see, and that's one of those movies, too, that, again, we took for granted when it came out because, and I was the same way, is that it was really built up. It was, you know, uh, the reunion of Ridley and uh, Russell Crowe. It's Denzel coming in, two huge stars, to tell this massive uh, kind of crime story and when it, that we were all kind of anticipating, like, The Godfather or whatever. Yeah. And when it came out, it was good. And we all kind of were like, it's good. That's fine. Then we didn't really talk a lot about American Gangster. But now you watch it, you know, a decade on, and it's like, that movie fucking rules. Like, what, what were we thinking? Yeah. What is the era, too, of, like, the Inside Man for Spike Lee, where I, at the time, I'm like, meh. I rewatched it. I'm like, actually, this, again, better than a lot of shit being made yeah. today, you know? Inside Man's so fucking great. Yeah, time has been very kind to that film, too. Another yeah. incredible Denzel oh, performance. He's, oh, yeah, at full at full peak. But to bring it back to Black Rain again, too, and, and the action beats that you're talking about, like, that motorcycle chase <laughs> at the end... It doesn't have to be in the mud. Great escape style. Yeah. Where they're just running each other down. With barbed wire everywhere. Barbed wire and have a full on like fist fight in the rain. But it's again, it's Ridley being like how there's an element of his filmmaking again. 
uh, to bring up him as like an image maker is that he has the, the, the almost like lizard brain where it's like, how can this be cooler? What if they're in the mud? What if they have barbed wire around them? What if it looks like a POW camp? Like it is kind of vaguely racist, but it's, but it is like him being like, they're revisiting the World War II conflict between America and Japan and how they're going to hash it all out here, Great Escape style. And it's like, all right, sure, whatever, Ridley. It's like a comic book world, you know? And, yeah. and again, it's like you said earlier, like um, not getting lost in details, not getting lost in, um, uh, like, especially with the true story ones, right? Like, it doesn't matter, but at the, at the price of the story, tell the story. And I remember... Um, one of the, I think, I think it was IndieWire. You like, you know, the top basically ranked all his films, and it was really well written. bunch of their, bunch of their um, critics, and they were talking about uh, Black Hawk Down, and they were saying like the film totally just like brushes over any times of any type of geopolitical uh, business. Again, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And it's like there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. It, there's also some problematic. I think there's uh, the demonic hordes of Africa. It, yeah, it's like Resident Evil Five. It's really rough and. <laughs> But the film is like absolutely visually mind blowing and fucking exciting, and it. You it, also compared it off mic to Thirteen Hours. Yeah, I think so. It's it's just like because it's like you you may, we were talking about it last night, and like you have the moment in Thirteen Hours where it's like, yeah, what happens when you get hit with a fifty cal? It's like, oh my god, those are like human beings, but also, oh, that's fucking cool. And this one has a scene where these, you know. Uh, a helicopter comes in and does a strafing run and literally kills like 500 fucking people on top of this. And it, it's, it's more of an action film than it is a war film. And there's yeah. a scene where Eric Bana fucking Rambo style goes behind this truck with his dudes, his Delta force guys, slits the throat of these guys, grabs a giant missile launcher, turns it on the main henchman. The henchman turns like commando style is like, Ooh, and then just blows him up. And I'm like, this is, and then the music comes in. It's like this true story war film. And I'm like, it's like, could you imagine seeing that in fucking like Saving Private Ryan, you know, or like Jarhead? Well, the thing is at the time, that's how that movie was sold to us is that they were like Black Hawk Down is, is the next step after Private exactly. Ryan and like hyper realistic, like military movie making. And you're like, no, it's not. It's fucking ridiculous. I will say the one scene in that, that makes me sick to my stomach the whole time is the surgery scene. Oh, where they're trying to get the the artery. (laughs) I can't even think about it. It's so gross. I I hadn't seen it since the theater and I was watching it two nights ago and I was like, I was watching it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the artery scene. It's 22 years ago, and I remembered this is the artery scene. Yeah, because like, I remember squirming in my seat oh, and being like, man. this is disgusting. Yeah. You want to get to Napoleon? Let's do it. All right. Dans mon esprit tout je me perds dans tes yeux. Je me noie dans la vague. Ton regard amoureux, je ne veux que ton âme divagant sur ma peau, une fleur, une femme dans ton cœur, Roméo, je ne suis que ton nom, le souffle lancinant de nos corps dans le sombre animé. Que quand le jour 
sans fond aime-moi Jusqu'à ce que les roses fanent Que nos âmes sont dans les limbes profondes We're back talking about Ridley Scott's Napoleon, the latest epic in a filmography filled with epics. And we haven't really touched upon that when talking about his body of work as a whole is that Ridley, as much as we went into how he kind of chases trends or what he thinks is going to sell uh, really well, um, he also kind of works not exclusively in like three molds, but close. Yeah. Because he does big period war movies. Sci-fi. Sci-fi movies. And then crime movies. Mm. And, like, there's some stuff in between, but even those could be, like, loosely categorized to, like, you know, matchstick men. Kind of a crime movie. It's yeah. like a small little character and movie. And the war stuff could also, you know... Like Black Hawk War Down in general is like an extension of his yeah, big war movies. Um, you know, the real outliers are stuff like uh, A Good Year. That's like, the big. Which really doesn't feel like it fits. Even White Squall, even though it's not about the military, has a militaristic kind of vibe yeah, 100%, to it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he does like very distinct things, and then obviously Napoleon is one of his war movies. One of his three movies now about you know medieval or Napoleonic France because you have the duelists, you have the last duel, the last duel, and now you have Napoleon. Yeah. And we haven't even touched on The Last Duel and how that, you know, to take it back to your comments about, like, how good the script is, is that you have, you know, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck writing again. In Nicole Holof Center. With Nicole Holof Center <laughs> in a sort of feminist Rashomon film about male impotence and rage and the women kind of stuck at the center. It's almost if, like... That's the other one that feels like an extension of the duelist is that it's about these two guys who feel like their honor is besmirched, but it's only because of this woman at the center of them who's the real victim of the entire kind of affair. He also has a um, thing he does with films like Last Duel and he does in Napoleon is um, a sense of like disillusionment with the past. Like he kind of strips away, like he strips away, again, it's about honor, you know, Gladiator you know, our main character is a truly honorable man, but his, his later films are really looking at like the legends of either, you know, true, uh, you know, important families in, in, you know, cultural history recently. Right. Or, or, or even Maximus feels like, even though he's a fictional character, he's playing against a very real backdrop. Yeah, exactly. But he is, he's true good. He's true honor. And with people like Napoleon, like I saw, you know, one of the reviews was like called it the emperor has no clothes, right? It's like kind of a dressing down of this historical figure. Um, but same with Last Duel is like, I think specifically, you know, because it's all about perspective too, right? You have um, in some ver some view, especially like 
the view of Damon's character as this true hero, like the you know the scene. <laughs> We talked about before that I, I woke your dad up because we saw it together at your house during Thanksgiving, and I yelled so loud. Oh, where he impales that dude's head in the opening battle sequence. Slides it down, and it was mm. just like, again, gore. Ridley having a great time, and I was having a great time. But it's, You did wake. That, that's a story that we do need to tell, though, is because, like, it was last year, right? Two years or ago. Two years it was ago. 2021. Um, around the holidays, my parents had come to stay at my house. And I had just gotten a screener of the last duel and you came over to have drinks. It was the night before Thanksgiving. You came over to have drinks and hang out with my parents and like just kind of, you know, get sassy. And (laughs) my parents go to bed because they're old people. And at like 12 or one, it was like 12. Yeah, Yeah. because my parents, you know, I make fun of my parents, but my parents can still hang. They can can drink most people under the table um, because they're Irish as fuck. But like. You know, they went to bed and we fired up the last duel on this screener and like 10 minutes in, you literally hooted and hollered when and this jumped off the couch, jumped off the couch when this man's head got impaled. And the next morning, my dad's like, what the fuck were you guys watching? I was like, why? What are you talking about? It was the last duel in the new Ridley Scott movie. He goes, well, whatever it was, it really excited Martin and it woke <laughs> me the fuck up. <laughs> And I, I'm sorry, but also I'm not sorry. No, don't ever be sorry because that movie rules. And that's part of the duology of that year, too, because you had The Last Duel and you had a Gucci. A Gucci. And, and Gucci, I had not seen it and I loved it, is very in keeping with the vibe of Napoleon as well, right? There's, there's a, you know, a, comedic, a comedic tone uh, to a lot of it. Um, also, though, again... It's about poking holes in like legacy and like in the history of the Gucci family, which from the outside, a lot of us is seen as pure, you know, um, class and, and luxury. And we kind of see it getting eaten, eaten away from the inside. Well, it's also kind of like the unifying theory of like Ridley Scott's later period is that it's all about how shitty rich people are and how they're destroying the fucking planet. Yep. Like really from like... Maybe the counselor on, but we'll say distinctly all the money in the world on. Yes. Because all the money in the world is about the Getty kidnapping and how, you know, you're dealing with these very acerbic, nasty, rich people. And then it kind of moves into how, you know, money makes you callous and thoughtless and, and a complete void as a human being. But like Gucci plays as the interesting flip side to the coin of the last duel, which is that, that 2021 uh, Ridley Scott duology is that in the center of the last duel, it's about a good woman who's caught between two shitty men. And in house of Gucci, it's about a shitty woman who's manipulating maybe one good man. And then a bunch of really horrible, horrible men around her and also contains Man, can we just go off on Gucci for like five seconds? Yeah. Because you had just seen it, and I've watched it like eight times. And what a masterpiece of like insanity that movie is. And just pure capital M mega acting in that. Like the counselor is like that too. Oh, the counselor. Javier Bardem in the counselor belongs in Gucci. It's so fucking indulgent. And like, dude, there's the moment. Where like Pacino and Jared Leto, which you'll never hear me utter this phrase again, but God 
bless you, Jared Leto. The only time. The only time that I'll ever say that to you because what the fuck were you even doing in this movie? You look like Wario. (laughs) Yeah. Poof, poof, poof. It's like, I needed the money. <laughs> He's like, you're, you're talking like you're, you're, you're like a, a Italian stereotype. And then Pacino's like screaming at you back from the other side of certain scenes. Lady Gaga is playing like Ursula from the little mermaid, but in like, you know, an Italian exploitation movie from yeah, the seventies. In, in, in leopard print. Adam Driver still working out his Italian accent that he gets to use again in Ferrari. Which, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, Ferrari, fucking awesome. Get we'll ready. cover that in the near future. Yeah, but like our boy man. Yeah, but like, dude, House of Gucci is just perverted, disgusting opulence for two hours and it turns into high camp and I love every fucking second of it. Well, it's, it's weird though. Cause it brings it all the way back to Barry Lyndon. Like you were talking yeah. about is like, is like the, the, again, uh, opulence, like almost like decaying opulence, you know? And I think the imagery of Blade Runner, like at the, the uh, Bradbury hotel where J.S. Sebastian lives is visually, it used to be the the you know um, height of style, and now it's this rain soaked place. Um, all of you know all the money in the world. The counselor, I think specifically again, the Javier, moral decay. Javier Bardem and and Cameron Diaz just being these like just like voids of humanity. That film is much more disturbing because you get a decapitated fucking beautiful Penelope Cruz. And this one, it's so played so much for laughs. You know, and also that's in the middle of uh, Ridley's incredible Michael Fassbender team up. Yeah, because we haven't even touched on Prometheus or Alien Covenant, really, and how that just becomes Michael Fassbender shooting threes from half court for like four hours. Oh, yeah. And he's just fucking nailing everyone. God, we watched Alien Covenant last night. And you want to talk about a movie that's like wildly misunderstood and underappreciated. Like Ridley, I think, is one of those guys because there's there's that huge debate. And it, this goes back to what we were talking about, too, about how he's the consummate salesman, always jumping genres, kind of chasing what's hot or current or that he thinks will sell really well in the market, is that a lot of people have la- labeled uh, Ridley Scott a hack over the years. And how he's just... And they can fuck off. Yeah, like a, a master workman who doesn't have any real distinguishable like style of his own, which is bullshit. Yeah. But who's also just kind of chasing a paycheck... And yeah, fuck you, first of all, because there's always sort of this very sly knowingness to his movies. And Alien Covenant is probably the most meta of all of his movies because it's him commenting on his own relationship to the way that he changed sci-fi and how he kind of feels about the creations he put in because you have everything (coughs) from the evil androids to the xenomorphs and you can see both his admiration for what they become while also having a very mean spirited kind of middle finger 
to the audience that just like, you know, who went into Prometheus and I was one of them. And so were you, you know, based on the stories that we've shared off Mike is that everybody went into Prometheus thinking like alien prequel, give me the alien. And then they didn't really get an alien because Ridley Scott was clearly not that interested in making another alien movie. And the best parts of that film are the non-alien stuff. Yeah. And that's amazing. But like alien covenant, seems to almost be like his reaction, especially that final third, including that completely preposterous shower sequence, is that, like, we were debating, you know, last night we were watching it, is that, like, we love the movie, it's awesome, he's doing another very, very grotesque horror movie in space, um, and he, he births the, the first xenomorph, and then it becomes just an alien run amuck movie in the final third, and it has that, shower sequence where like even though they just saw all their friends get annihilated a couple gets in the shower and is having really weird steamy sex together and then the alien creeps in and slaughters them and we're like man this feels like it's out of a total totally different movie and i had the thought while hanging around today and just running errands is that like i think he did it on purpose and that could be me like assigning intent or something is that it's almost him being like, oh, this is what you wanted in the last movie. Stupid, like alien movie shit that would be in like a generic sequel. Yeah. You want a and Jason here, movie with alien? Here you go. Yeah. This is what you get. And it's kind of him giving you the finger the whole time in that, like having his cake and eat it too moment, because then he has that entire stretch with the twin Davids you know, having philosophical debates and fighting one another. And that shit is like Ridley Scott's dead ringers. It's so fucking weird. And like Michael Fassbender is just on one the entire time teaching himself how to finger a flute. Ooh, baby turn it. I'm not gay, but that turns me on. Well, and again, back to like kind of what we keep talking about though, is he, he chases even with a movie like this, the difficult, right? And like that scene Technically, is like a, you were, you know made the Dead Ringers comparison, but not just on a narrative level, but also a filmmaking and like special effects. It's hard like, to know how he did it because it, 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 it's a one shot. And it keeps moving. It keeps um keeps like dollying back and forth. I think they're probably on handheld, but no, it definitely has to be computer controlled. But there's a digital flute, I think, to make it look like they're both holding the same thing. But it's literally like you watch, you're like, I don't know how. You did this, and it's so it's a lot like the stuff that um, Zemeckis did in Back to Future Three with uh, with all the different Michael J. Foxes, like yeah. some crazy shit, you know, of like, and it's so um, uh, it's so uh, kind of invisible when you yeah. don't think about it. But no, my favorite part of Alien Covenant, and so I stupidly didn't see it in the theater because I really uh, Prometheus left a bad taste in my mouth. I regret it to this day. You done fucked up. Well, and I, you know, I, you texted yesterday, what are you watching? And I was like, well, I just bought the 4k disc of alien covenant. Like I'm coming over. I'm like, yeah, you are. And it was beautiful. Um, but it was a beautiful moment too. It was, you, know, it's, you rescued me from my car breaking down. And then we shared an alien movie it, together it was, and, it was, and some it, shrimp tacos and some tacos and chips. And, but he, um, that whole part of like, um, David as this, like he's been left alone on this, this desolate planet. He's grown his hair out. He's like, looks like a, like a character from like Lord of the Rings. Well, it's kind of the continuation of his Lawrence of Arabia fascination. Exactly. Is that it's, it's when Lawrence is actually in the wilderness, in the jungle and gets to, to live as a native. Yeah. And it's like, and it's also like John Logan really going like full literary. Cause like, 
Logan's it's like when you watch like Penny Dreadful, like Logan went all the way with his kind of like gothic literature and he brings a lot of that in the, for, you know the dialogue in Alien Covenant is so ornate. Yeah, an arch. Yeah. No one understands the lonely perfection of my dreams. <laughs> and that's Logan. Like that's him going all the way with that. Like you said, very ornate dialogue. Yeah, everybody just goes ham in that movie, including including Ridley himself. Because again, like while he is very open in these these interviews about like oh, I don't think about you know dying, I don't think about the work, I I just do it, you know. Eh, I don't one hundred percent believe you. I think you're taking the piss a little bit because Alien Covenant kind of speaks to where you see your creations and how they've kind of been perverted. Yeah, and I mean, we should real quick. Uh, I mean, I told you the story, but like when I, I was on a press junket for Alien Covenant at uh, South by, and and you didn't even see the movie, and I didn't even see the movie. Well, they didn't. They didn't play it. Um, but it was in the basement of the Four Seasons at South by in Austin. And I was invited to like, hey, you want to interview Ridley Scott? I said, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But it was probably like five, probably eight critics. And then Ridley walks in and Danny McBride and Catherine Watterson. And basically, we all get a chance to ask like a question. And Ridley does not want to fucking be there. And it's clear. And he's nice, but he's he's just like, I'm I'm terrible. And, and I'm sitting right next to him. I forgot to tell you that. So I'm like as close as I am to you right now at this table. Did he smell good? He smelled great. He smelled like you know just rich like, people. He smelled he, like money. He, he smelled like a, a tobacco box from England. You know, <laughs> like a like pipe smoke. You know, I, he, he smells like I imagine your dead like, grandfather's room. Yeah, he imagined he kind of smells like Ernest Hemingway. And um, but we're all kind of asking questions, and a lot of the questions were. People were looking for blurbs about um, alien um, mythology, right? And which he does not give two shits about. And so people kept saying, like, oh, there was a rumor before that Catherine Watterson's character was related to Ripley, that it was like there was a, a rumor mill. So people were asking that kind of stuff. He's having none of it. And he keeps all he wants to talk about is artificial intelligence, like, but like, and, and androids. And so I asked this question and I don't think, I don't remember what I asked, but it wasn't specifically about like Ripley or alien mythology. And he just completely brushes my question aside, which I'm okay, whatever. I look across the table and Danny McBride gives me this look like welcome to my fucking world, like working with dad here. And I kind of roll my eyes. We share this moment and it like, it saved my day because I was like, I kind of got rebuffed by really Scott, but it was kind of cool. And then I had a moment with, you know, Danny McBride and Catherine Watterson's looking all beautiful across the table. So it was like, it all worked out. That's what caused your, your question to not be great too, is that you were too distracted by Catherine Watterson. I mean, she was, she's stunning. Um, but, but it was, I mean, honestly, like that was one of those things like to be in the same room with that dude, like I'll do it. I'll take yeah, it. Like, it's, 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 it's a top memory for sure. So Napoleon. Yes. The capstone to both Ridley's Kubrick obsession, because not only is it his Barry Lyndon. Bless you. Sorry. It's also, you know, the greatest unrealized Kubrick project. Because even Spielberg was supposed to do he's it. He's doing one it point. now. For oh, TV. is he? It's still. Oh, happening. he's still doing he's it. He's doing it for HBO Max. Oh no, shit! They're I thought it. that was off. It's I thought, happening. I thought this trumped that 
So it wasn't happening. It anymore. is happening. But like, but that was the whole. It's the whole life of Napoleon. So here, here's what I think. Spielberg doesn't, as much as I love him, don't get me wrong, doesn't have the balls to make Napoleon Bonaparte a kinky little pervert like Ridley does. Yeah. Because Joaquin Phoenix, all he wants to do is get deep in Vanessa Kirby's pussy and ruin the world and himself in service of it. And you know what? In common. Yeah, I was going to say... <laughs> I can relate, bro. <laughs> Dude, I saw it with my brother. Uh, we were back for Thanksgiving, and um, we both just fucking loved it. And to, we were talking off mic, but also we were talking before about, you know, Matt Damon in Martian just doing Matt Damon. This, to me, we, we talked all... There's also the story that, you know, two days before filming for Napoleon, Joaquin goes to Ridley and says, like, I don't got it, basically. I don't understand this character. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And they go, they you know, they've said that, oh, we, we, for two days straight, we just talked and broke down every scene and we figured it out. But you watch the movie and it's just Joaquin doing his, his new, his, his mopey, his mopey, like, um, just Impident. like bottom feeder thing he did in, in the, in the master. He did it in Joker. Um, and he's doing it here. And I like Joaquin okay, but like this was him just doing that all the way. And, and my favorite scene, though, is uh, when he <laughs> he comes into the bedroom and he starts acting like a horse. He's like, <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? And just the the depravity of him. You know what's the best so part of that hilarious. fucking scene too is that the servants look at each other and leave like he's done this before. <laughs> Yeah, he's just a. This is the signal. This is how we know that boning is about to happen between Napoleon and Josephine. Well, and like I, I read the the Manola Dargis review is great um, for New York Times for this, but she says it without saying it that it's like this is Ridley talking about Trump as well. Like it's like you can't. It's not he's doing it purposely, but it's there. It's that type of leader. The emperor has no clothes. You know, this guy who talks a big game, but underneath it, he's just a little piece of shit. Well, you know? the one thing I did find curious about the movie, and that maybe it's Ridley doing it through all of the, the sexual perversion and his driving desire to never be told no, to take on any battle, no matter how uh, seemingly winless it yeah. is. Um is that it never really comments on Napoleon being fucking short. Like, it does it once yeah. when he's in Egypt and he looks at the pharaoh and he has to step on the apple box to get eye That's to cool eye with the, with the mummy, which is a cool scene, but it's only really... The, the, the only real moment in the movie where it, it addresses the fact that Napoleon was a fucking midget. Yeah. You know? But, like, there is a whole idea that there's a Napoleon complex. There's a whole... That to this day we still use as as yeah. common uh, shorthand for like <laughs> man pun intended that yes sorry <laughs> I didn't actually think about that one but like for like ah oh, there's that guy who fucking you know he thinks he's like yeah. hot shit and he he's really got a, he's is got a big chip, he's, yeah. he's got a he's got little man complex you know as, but, as two tall dudes yeah and we are both two <laughs> tall dudes but like it. It's interesting to me that Ridley almost seems like he's like, yeah, everybody fucking knows that. Like, who gives a shit? And he's more interested in, like, how that translates yes. to the other parts of his life. And 
the fact that he makes him just a horny little like lawn gnome the entire time is amazing because Joaquin really leans into like, like as the movie goes on, it almost feels like, and it's not obviously, but it almost feels like it's shot in sequence because mm. like his performance is very muted up front. Um, and it does like, I heard in another podcast, somebody basically referred to it as almost like a non-performance. Like you said, it's yeah. Joaquin doing the Joaquin thing just as Napoleon. He doesn't even attempt a fucking accent. Nobody really does yeah. in the movie. And it's like, he just kind of is like building himself up and he gets more ridiculous as the movie goes along. But again, does, does it through like all of the trademark, like Joaquin ticks and like, when this movie finally does hit streaming, there are going to be some like gifts that come out of it that are going to be so fucking awesome. Like, dude, when he screams, you think you're so great because you have boats at the British like commander. Like I lost my shit. There were a lot of moments in this movie where like I saw it middle of the day today at IMAX maybe a third full and it was mostly old people and it was dead quiet. Nobody else laughed once. And I was cackling like a maniac at this movie because like, I just felt like, like it really is Ridley in the same way again, to bring it back to like Kubrick and Barry Lyndon is that it's, it's Ridley laughing at these people and being like, look how fucking preposterous this guy is. And like Joaquin almost seems to find the character as they go along and does it through his own, you know, again, trademark ticks and everything like the whole coup sequence. Oh my God. You could just call that Bonaparte is afraid because he just is like this manic little weirdo. Who's being chased by all these Wide other like camera handhelds, all handheld. And he's just back there like screaming, they're going to fucking kill me in the same way that he's doing. And Bo is afraid. Like, it's just a totally ridiculous sequence. Also like the moment where the one general comes to him and tells him that Josephine's cheating on him back at home. And like, he just kind of silently like stews and then looks at him and goes, please go now. No dessert for you. <laughs> like I lost it. I was like, Oh my God, give me that gift so I can just send it to everybody who annoys me all the time. We, um, I, I it was the same for us. We were laughing a lot and it was a packed. It was like opening night. It was Thursday. Did anybody else laugh? A few people like my, my brother and I are dying. Right? It's almost like people. It's almost like Ridley tricked people into thinking you had to take this seriously, like a real history lesson or something. Well, and the part that I laughed at the most, and this sounds really callous though, is I think he did it as a joke is all the numbers of the dead in the, the final frames. Dude, it, the, the, the parenthetical a... at the end about Waterloo, where yeah. it's like 60,000 or whatever, parenthetical, one day. <laughs> and and that's, that's, that's the joke. is like It's like in a lot of film, and I think, again, he's playing against the type of historical, historical fiction, right? Where you have the like, and, and then he went on to victory, or this many people were lost. It's so sad. No, this is saying this guy actually kind of sucked, he won huge dipshit he won but he also lost like like everything that happens in russia right he just goes off in the cold and loses like what four thousand men in like months just like they all die in the fucking cold it's like no let's strip this down a little bit and realize yeah he had some victories but like the thesis of the film is is waterloo like it was always waterloo well i mean and take gender out of it i mean the main thesis of like kind of his last 
couple movies in a row, you know, Last Duel, House of Gucci, this, is that look at the crazy ass shit people will do to just get a little pussy. You know what I mean? Like, or in Lady Gaga's case, some of that good driver dick. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, they will plot murder. They will kill 3 million people. They'll fucking, like, challenge each other to duels to the death, even if they're fucking rapists. And to make you think that they're great people. Like, it's all about, like, people just being completely, like, like that Prince song, Pussy Control. Like, they just, they're just completely fucking, you know, cunt struck. Well, and it's also, it's just obviously financially it's social it's social climbing right the, all three films yeah you know specifically adam driver in last duel in his relationship with ben affleck it's social climbing right it's like making buddies with this guy oh my god i, I forgot about ponzi ben affleck in last duel how great is he well, and he's doing a, a house of gucci type thing right it's this ridiculous character it's again the decadence and the the ugly decadence of the of the the uber wealthy right and it's just like oh because it doesn't make it like all the like orgies they have, you know, with Adam Driver and I have a feeling that they, they probably fucked each other too. It seems like, you know, like in, come back, take off your pants. Yeah. So, um, no, it definitely feels like he's working out some, some really kind of comedic stuff he's wanted to do for a long time. But he always had a good, weird sense of humor. I feel like it's still, oh, yeah. it's still there. I mean, the counselor is one of the ultimate examples of that right it's this bleak nihilistic cormac mccarthy written like tome to to human evil that's also hysterically funny and has a whole sequence where javier bardem talks about being terrified of uh cameron diaz's vagina because it looks like a catfish yeah on the on the glass like it's like it's a completely preposterous movie but like ridley scott does have a really really twisted kind of sense of humor gallows humor for sure it's very dry it's very dark very british in its own way but like it's hard not to watch napoleon and be like he thinks these these people are all absurd which is also kind of ironic because ridley himself is like mega rich he well in his in his winery and and what you know let's not forget too with napoleon like some of the most w- w- between all this funny gallivanting and like the stuff he did, the character scenes with with Joaquin, some of maybe the most difficult giant battle scenes he's ever done. Oh, for sure. I mean, like the because f- Waterloo is one of the most obviously famous battles in the history of ever. <laughs> also, some and, of his most horrific imagery. Oh. That moment when he. You know, Bonaparte really makes his name by turning the cannons on his own people who are revolting. And Ridley Scott gives us the close-ups of when the cannonballs actually tear through the front line of those protesters. And, like, there's the part where if you want to talk about Trump and, like, police, like, how the imagery is essentially mirroring our current time and reality is, like... That was, to me, the most Trumpian thing about it is that it's about a guy who will put down any unrest using fascist tactics and, like, you know, just take cannonballs out of it and you just, you know, replace it with police brutality and unleashing the full uh, power of the military-industrial complex that now polices our country onto the people who who tell you that you're wrong. Like, that's what... That was the thing that I took away from it. But yeah, I mean, you, you are totally right. It's that it's him commenting of like, 
Look at these fucking assholes who, like, run the world and run it into the ground. Like, they're all just guided by, like, you know, their own desire for power and getting laid. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, totally agree. And it's very, um, the way that politics is all bullshit, right? It's like, not just Napoleon, but everyone in the film, the way they talk, they know it's a game. You know, the way that... It's all posturing and positioning. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, the way you see that slowly kind of be stripped away until Napoleon, you know, that, that awesome scene, you know, the after the scene you talked about of him, you know, the coup, and he comes back and he goes, shall we vote? With, like, you know, his entire army behind him. And it's, and it's like, again, comedically done. But, no, he... The scene where I knew what I was in for, violence-wise and also tone was his horse getting hit in the chest. The fucking, oh my God, and my so brother awesome. my brother and I are like, oh, shit. And everyone's like kind of quiet. I'm like, oh, I'm so into this fucking movie, man. When he, he just digs go, the fucking cannonball uh, out. For and, mother. And throws it to his brother and is like, for mother. I was like, oh, my God. And that was a cool thing, too. Like, it was so, I think, they didn't hit it too he- too heavy, but the idea of like, he has a social climb or mother, right? That she probably, she instilled in him from a young age, like, you got to, you got to find your your step and take it, right? You got to climb. It, it's the vibe I get of her character. That feels like the stuff that's lost, though, that's going to be right. in the four-hour cut. Yeah. Is because, yeah, it, it jumps so fast, especially in that first act, that we don't really get a sense of who Napoleon is until it slows down and gives us all of the weird, freaky sex stuff and like yeah. relationship with his mom. But even then, his relationship with his mom is very, very vaguely defined. Yeah, and her but, not liking Josephine. Yeah, like, like you don't really scene. understand yeah. why that's going on outside of like she can't bear him an heir, and then she goes and gets him in like an eighteen-year-old uh, concubine to see if he is still fertile, and he instantly knocks her up. But like, it's like Barry Lyndon's mom. It reminds yeah, me that too. Exactly. That very similar. Well, and to take it back to Barry Lyndon too, is that like. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording is that, you know, when we talk about Joaquin's performance in this and how is it a non-performance? Is it this? Is it that? I mean, Kubrick was known for casting, particularly in Barry Lyndon, you know, with Ryan O'Neal, these guys who are more or less like blank slates that we could project anything on and they were just pretty bimbos who just... Again, that was part of the character. They navigated their way through the ranks of power because they were really good looking and they were kind of vapid. And I wonder if there's some of that going on with Joaquin's performance there is that Ridley's like, you don't overthink it. Like, he's just a horny little fucker who really has not a whole lot going on inside of his head outside of like some very brutal and fascistic military techniques. No, I think that's, I mean, if we want to like be a fly on the wall of those two days of conversation, it probably was really being like, like you said, you're overthinking it, calm down, just do it. Like, you know what I mean? I don't think it was, just do the thing. I don't think he was like, I think it was more like you're, you're making this too complicated. Like just do yourself like you get it, <laughs> you know, we'll go scene by scene, but it's, and or like, you know, even like the way he cast him, like Jack, Jack Nicholson, like Jack is doing ultimate Jack in the shining. Like that's just Jack right. to it. You know, and, 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 um, uh, Malcolm McDowell doing Malcolm McDowell in clockwork orange. Right. He found this kid from, you know, the Lindsay Anderson film says, just do that. Yeah, stuff like if and everything. <laughs> yeah, just, and oh look, a lucky man. And yeah, he yeah. just like doubled down on that persona. That's a yeah. good. That's a good observation too. Well, Martin, 
this is the first in what hopes to be a regular revival oh, we're back. of Secret Handshake. We're back. Um, we do have something else coming up here very soon. We're going to do some Christmas horror for y'all since we're in December. But uh, we want you to know we missed y'all, but we are back, and Secret Handshake is here to stay. And Martin, I'm glad to see you. You too, sir. We'll see y'all next time. All right. Later. We'll be talking about what's what's it? Oh man! Become the drums. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and motherfucking girls. This is your captain with no name speaking, and I'm here to rock your world with a tale that will soon be classic about a woman you already know. No prostitute she, but the mayor of your brain. Pussy control. In a schoolyard, a little girl skipping rope with her friends. A tennis kid, a task, you no know, lunch in her basket. Just school books for the fight she would be in one day over this hoodie. She got beat for some clothes in a rep. With her chin up, she stole it. All y'all's molded. When I'm rich on your neck, I will step. Best step she did to the straight A's. Then college, the master degree. She hired the heifers that jumped her and made every one of them work for free. No, why so? What if my sisters are trifling? They just don't know. She said mama didn't tell them what she told me. Girl, you need <laughs> pussy control. <laughs> bank in her pockets before she got dick in her drawers if brother didn't have good and plenty of his own in love pussy never did fall and this fool named trick wanna stick her <laughs> talking more shit than a bit about how you gonna make pussy a style if she come a single lick on his head pussy said nigga you crazy if you don't know every woman in the world ain't a freak you can go platinum four times still couldn't make what i make in a week so push your ball somebody wanna hear that cause if somebody here don't wanna know Better act like you understand when you roll with pussy control. Hit me!